Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. Imagine a scene in a movie that takes place at an Arkansas nuclear missile complex in September 1980. After a socket is accidentally dropped down the silo and punctures the fuel tank of an intercontinental ballistic missile, workers scramble to perform drastic emergency measures to avoid a deadly explosion. While this sounds like the newest action thriller starring glamorous actors, it's actually the true story subject of director Robert Kenner's new documentary, Command and Control. The film was shown recently at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles as part of our documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking documentary films for DGA members and guests, with screenings and conversations with the top documentary filmmakers working today. In addition to Command and Control, Mr. Kenner is known for his feature film documentaries Merchants of Doubt, Food Incorporated, and Origins, his television documentaries like Russia's Last Tsar, and episodes of the TV documentary series American Experience and National Geographic Explorer. Kenner and Food Incorporated were nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentaries, as well as the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Following the screening, Mr. Kenner discussed the making of Command and Control with fellow director Chuck Workman. In the conversation, Mr. Kenner describes recreating the events of the accident inside the last remaining Titan II missile silo and interviewing Dave Powell, the worker who dropped the socket. So isn't the military great? <laughs> How not not the, their finest day. Did they cooperate at all? Did you have problems with them? Well, we got, uh, I couldn't have done this film without shooting in the last remaining Titan II missile silo. And that is still controlled by the Air Force and uh, it's part of a museum. So it's a dual sort of ownership. And the Air Force uh, at first was resistant to letting me in. Uh, and eventually we got permission and uh, and after getting permission, they were absolutely helpful. Uh, Why do you think that? Did they? I think the the lady who ran the museum had been a former missileer. I think she was upset at how these men were treated that night, uh, and I think she trusted us to do a representative job. And uh, and actually, the Air Force guys ended up helping us do our ADR. <laughs> they came in for right. nothing, refused they, anyway. I, yeah, I did feel I found, I heard a voice and I said, oh, that was, must have been a recreated voice at that oh, we had point. A, we had it was a, the real guy, but I'm, but. Yeah, the, the Air Force, actually, four or five guys from the Air Force came in and did ADR for nothing for uh, us. That's great. Uh, so you, we were talking about, I was so astounded by uh, uh, the, the, the recreation of, of, of the scenes in the films, and we all were, actually, yeah. Uh, and yet we, we, you know, and this audience sees a lot of documentaries, and 
we've seen bad recreations, you know, for a long, long time. But these all kind of melded together. And just we were just talking a few seconds ago about uh, when I mentioned the chainsaw credit. The the color was all melted. It just was all came together. So could you talk about the various uh, elements? There was these slightly out of focus shots where you saw the guys. But then when you saw the actual guys, was that stock footage of some kind? Or was that old footage or something that you shot? Or you don't want to tell us or, or what? <laughs> right. <laughs> um. There was some footage. Uh, uh, there's Air Force training footage uh, in command centers of turning the keys, and uh, and there's some footage from that night uh, exterior where you see Jeff Kennedy outside. That's real, and his voice is real. And um, Jim Sandbaker driving in. Uh, we couldn't believe. Uh, my editor said, "I think I found the footage of him driving in," and I said, "That's impossible." Well, one of those, one of those news people shot that. Yeah, that, that was that, shot. That was real, uh, but there was obviously no camera in the guy dropping the socket or in the command center that night, and much of the exterior that night was filled in. So we had a match bad 1980 video. Uh, Paul Goldsmith did a great job shooting this to create this sort of sense of, you know, we were making a techno thriller. Uh, so it's fun to be able to make a documentary techno thriller, uh, sort of a, a new genre. <laughs> <laughs> so you shot a, um, you said you, you, let me start it this way. You get this idea or, or you get it with, Eric, or whatever way you got the idea to do the film. And you say, any filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, say, well, how do I do that? How do I create that and keep it going without just having a lot of stills and, and, and talking heads? Well, Eric, actually, I, we trade back and forth. I've, uh, he had written Fast Food Nation, and we made Food Inc. out of that. And we collaborate even when we're not working together. And I had read his manuscript and then read the book when it came out. And he kept saying, let's do it. And I kept saying, I don't know how to do it. I just don't know how to make it a movie. And he said, well, help me find a director if you're not going to do it. Because there were people ready to fund it. And I said, well, you need a missile silo. And then he sent me a picture of the silo. And while we were on the phone, he sent it to me, and I said, I'll do it. And he went, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you wait, wait a minute. He sent you this – not the silo in Arkansas. Yeah, that silo. No, it's, it's a silo that's in Arizona uh, that is an exact – there were 54 silos. They're exactly the same. Uh, and now there's only one that's remaining. It's a deactivated silo. There's a hole in the warhead so the Russians – can come check it every year to see that it's not an active silo. And is it real Titan in there? That's all real, us dropping the socket. We thought we were going to do things in computer animation, but it was all done in camera. Everything was done in camera, with the exception of the steam coming out of the missile, which we actually had done in camera, but enhanced it. So it's great that, you know, to be able to shoot in a Titan II missile silo and be able to put drone in the silo, uh, it was 11 stories, and we had a drone that flew between the missile and the wall that was four feet away. 
So how many takes did it take to get the thing, the socket to drop uh, well? Uh, yeah. You got it the first time? Um, well, the Air Force said it's a million to one shot that it would fall and hit and then bounce to this. We dropped it 12 times, hit six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our producer, Melissa Robledo, she uh, actually, Paul would say, well, don't hit there. Can you hit here? And she would do it. Uh, it would hit exactly where we wanted. It, it, it is We amazing. made a styrofoam remake, so we weren't going to damage the missile. But the lady running the silo at first, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And by the end, she was saying, we could just dump gasoline and light it on fire. And, uh, you know, she was very into it. And we were thinking. And she had brought three fire trucks. And that's all the lights were her doing. And, and the explosions, uh, they were from the, the time? Um, there. And, and by the way, let me compliment you on the editing of coming back to those explosions so many times from different points of view. In, instead of having one big shot where you cut several hundred times and uh, Mel Gibson is running away from it and behind, you know, that, but it was, um, it really worked at that Thanks. point. Thanks. That was something that we, you know, obviously figured out in the editing room. Uh, one of those explosions was real. It was for. Uh, actually, the radio announcer said he had never seen so many news crews throw so many expensive cameras so quickly. <laughs> they just threw the camera. So there was only the one where it lies on its side was real. Uh, others were NASA explosions. But then the close-ups were us doing our sort of small recreations uh, at the site. And, and the... Um what I asked before was the, the the guys in the Air Force uniforms in the beginning when they were practicing. I mean, that where did you get that footage? That was just when you say practicing. I mean, they were working on. They were working. They weren't practicing. They were working inside the. Uh, the we rooms. that was us shooting these guys in these spacesuits in the real location. So uh, actually, we had a lot of Air Force recreation footage, but it looked so fake yeah. that we had to go shoot it ourselves <laughs> to make it look real. So it was a strange change. Yeah, I don't know how many of you saw Food Inc. Did you guys all see? We showed it here, yeah, right? Uh, and I, you know, I commented at, since about Robbie's kind of persistence. It's a dogged persistence, I guess like Hillary Clinton, uh, to, uh, was described, uh, to... <laughs> to really get the stuff, get the good stuff. And, and uh, I, I, we see it again. And it, it's really uh, great for us who watch so many documentaries to, to see a filmmaker who's saying, wait a minute, I gotta really nail this. I gotta get this right. And uh, so thank well, you. Well, in this film, there was one, um, it was very hard for these guys to go back and revisit this, especially Dave Powell, the man who dropped the socket. He was. Certainly, well, damn. He seemed kind of jolly about it, though. He was talks. very jolly our first time, um, and yet I knew that wasn't yeah. who he was, and um, and I felt very dissatisfied by our first interview. He was the only one I interviewed twice, and I asked him to come back, and he had shaved his mustache the day after he left and said, I can't do it, I don't have the mustache. And I was contemplating getting him a fake mustache, but I thought if we're gonna be really emotional, it might be weird if he had a fake mustache. So we waited a number of months and he did not wanna to talk to me the first time and he really didn't wanna to talk to me the second time. The first time he said, you know, I can 
try to remember, and I can actually remember this experience. And the second time you see him where he said, every time I close my eyes, yeah. I see this, and he starts crying. And he was so... Um, What's amazing about Dave is he had never told his mother about this incident until about three weeks ago when he took her to a screening of the film. So, uh, you know, these guys were really traumatized. And I think you can see that in the film. I don't know if you guys yeah. got that. But even this guy who was smiling a lot, you can still see and, and the way yeah. you kind of cut back to him, especially at the end, you really can see a real human being who is. And then the other guys are talking about him. So, uh Again, I, I, it just seemed like such a, a, a rich kind of leveled kind of a film that was so much more than the subject because a lot of filmmakers could have made that subject and they would have, you know, it could have been something we see on Channel 28 or something. And, something uh, I feel gratified about is that the we've had screenings and the a number of Secretary of Defenses and Jerry Brown and people have been in the audience and I've introduced Greg Devlin who put his life on the line that night and was basically thrown out of the Air Force because it was so much easier for the Air Force to blame these guys than blame themselves. Like they figured out to put a safety net under uh, where oh, the socket gosh. was afterwards. So, But yet they called this a human error, uh, as if they had nothing to do with it. Uh, and, you know, I think the real human error is that we create these machines in the first place. That's the real error. But these guys are now going to be honored by the Air Force in a ceremony in Washington. So I feel very oh, happy about that. Is that a result of the film, you think? Or, or? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and listen, there are probably 10,000 other guys in other incidences that will not be honored. And, and how did you dig them all up? Well, Eric did all the heavy lifting uh, in terms of this. Eric's book was a much broader scope book, uh, but and I just took this incident. But many of these guys were in Eric's book, other than Jeff Plum, who was with uh, Powell. Which one night. was he? He was the the other guy who was he was the young kid. That oh, was right, in his okay. face, I and uh, I needed some people to bounce off of. Um, okay, and so um, I. I People, I'm sure, will have questions, but uh, especially about the theme and the subject matter, which we haven't even talked about because the filmmaking was so interesting. Uh, but um, I just got another question about the filmmaking, which was the use of music. It looks like it was scored or spotted anyway in a very kind of narrative feature way where you said, okay, I need some music here. I, I'll leave it out here. I mean, did you – was that – a long process for you, or, or the music took a long yeah. time. Um, but we, you know, we were out to make a thriller. You know, it was sort of a uh, Tom Clancy, Paul Greengrass kind of out and out thriller, um, and music plays a part. Sometimes I feel guilty that we use too much music. You go to the Berlin Festival and you see films with no music. Exactly, so yeah. uh, I don't know. You know, I'm sort of. Uh, we, I always give in myself. You know. <laughs> right. I guess we gave in, <laughs> but it, it it certainly worked, and it was it, it was an interesting way, and it wasn't overdone. So you know, okay. Um, anybody have any questions about this? Yeah. So, you want to repeat it? Or, can everyone hear that? Well, she asked about uh, the editing process to talk about that, and then also any other uh, results in the government, et cetera, uh, the, from the film. Yeah. Um, in terms of the editing, we hadn't had the drop at the beginning uh, and just realized it was taking too long to tell people 
what's happening. So we were out to make a clock movie and realized relatively early on that we needed to let people know something's going to happen. So that really helped the film uh, by putting that up front. Uh, In terms of, you know, what's really interesting in terms of the reaction to the film, uh, I mean, obviously this is very critical of the U.S. Air Force, uh, but, you know, compared to Food, Inc., where we were, you know, Monsanto and McDonald's and all these companies wanted to sue and, you know, did sue us. Uh, this is a film where now we're being invited into all the halls of power. So it's really a strange reaction. Uh, the three major weapons labs, being Sandia, Livermore, and Los Alamos, are, have all asked us to screenings. Uh, we've screened for the uh, SAC. Uh, we screamed at the Democratic Convention. And uh, I'd say, you know, about five Secretary of Defenses have screened the film two or three times uh, at events. So it's it's something that I think on some levels the Air Force is really, they have to live with this. And, you know, for me, what got me interested in this subject is there's this total amnesia that has overtaken our country. And as Harold Brown, uh, who's the Secretary of Defense uh, at the time of this accident, who's in the film, who happens to be probably the biggest talk of all those people and yet is terrifying when he talks about this, this is something that happens every day. Um, he was saying that, you know, on one hand, our weapons are safer. They're no more sort of liquid fuel rockets, which are very dangerous. Uh, they're all solid state, which are much safer. The warheads are safer. But the situations become more dangerous because we have stopped being very concerned about them. So they're this film, though it takes place in 1980, these incidents are happening to this day. Uh, the Air Force is not revealing. AP is trying to get information about an accident in Colorado that we're under the impression was very bad, and they're not releasing the information. Uh, but they're planes that are flying with four hydrogen bombs, and no one knows they're on them, and it takes three days to find them. Uh, and they're flying across the United States with no one knowing it. So I think that the Air Force is concerned by this, and there's a public that doesn't think about it, uh, and then we're about to spend a trillion dollars to up, uh, discussing whether we should upgrade the system. Uh, and unfortunately, there are only a few people in Washington who are even discussing this. And you know, I think what's really interesting is that in the 1980s, there was a huge nuclear anti-nuke movement uh, it was around the world, and it really influenced uh, President Reagan, and it really influenced Gorbachev, and we went from 70,000 weapons down to 15 today. Uh, still way too many, you know, perhaps zero is a better number, but the fact is, how many times do you need to blow up the planet? And as you can see, these things don't necessarily make you safer. Uh, so hopefully there'll be some interest in the subject, and luckily Donald Trump's helping to create that. <laughs> yeah. Have the, has the film been viewed by other nuclear powers around the world? I mean, I think the one thing you have to realize is, as critical as we are of the U.S. Air Force, Uh, They're probably better at doing what they do than any other uh, country in the world. And we are 
vastly better, as hard as it was for Eric to find out what happened and the man who was in charge of, you know, safety at Sandia to find out about the accidents, which is amazing. Uh, Eric found out about accidents that happened in England that the English government wouldn't reveal to their own people. Uh, So we're better with secrets and we're better with safety. If you look at rates of industrial accidents that take place around the world, ours are you know, we're vastly safer. Imagine what it's like in Pakistan or what it's like. But uh, we screened in Palo Alto the other day, and uh, there was a lady that was having to leave to go to the Pentagon, and she works with Indians and Pakistanis in two conference rooms next to each other, and they do war games, and they've done it three or four times, and they keep coming up with scenarios, and each time they blow each other up. Um, And she's gotten 50 of our DVDs to bring to show to them. Um, Yeah, on the back. What about the radiation fallout? There was... Oh, you mean at that explosion? Uh Uh-huh. There was none. Um, and that was uh, actually we screened the other day at the near the site of the accident. Uh, it's a county with 1,200 people, and a thousand people showed up at the screening. Uh, lots of kids, and it was really interesting. It was a very different kind of crowd. And um, the reality was that people really weren't hurt that night. Uh, I mean, obviously, they were scared out of their minds, and and they weren't given information that they should have been given. But two years before, there was an incident. The fuels from the rocket, there were leaks at the rocket, uh, from the rocket two years before, and a lot of the cattle were poisoned, and no cattle died at this incident, which is always a question we usually get. And food, Inc., any cattle die? No cattle died. Okay, chickens did, though. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, the question is about the um, the the young airmen who were going through this checklist, and it, it seemed to him that it was kind of vague and and sketchy what they had to do. Yeah. Well, checklists are good items because they're ultimately a, a composite of information that is put together and shared with people who might not have all that information. Uh, but there was no checklist for what happened that night. Uh, so they were thrown off into a world where uh, a general in Omaha was set to make decisions about something he knew nothing about. Uh, they made some very bad decisions, um, sending the men, the, the men that first time went down into the escape hatch, which was a lot easier than breaking into a nuclear silo. Uh, which he ordered them to do way after all the gases had escaped, uh, which was an act of insanity. Though what is still totally unclear to this day as to what would be the right thing to do. So there is no um, absolute answer to what they should have done, though they made you know, Martin Marietta said, just leave it alone and walk away. It's going to explode. The the weapon designers were concerned that it was going to explode, you know, that the missile was going to explode is what Martin Marietta was saying. The weapons designers were also concerned that the weapon would explode. And that was, that weapon was vastly stronger than all the arms used in all the wars ever. Uh, So 
that was a scary thought. So there, you know, you could have opened that silo door, uh, let the gases escape, uh, and there would have been less of a chance of the missile exploding. But if the missile exploded, it could have gone up in the air, the warhead could have gone up in the air, at which point it would have thought it was over Russia and should detonate. Uh, so it's not clear what should have happened, but sending the men to break into the silo at that hour was insanity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the silos were not pressurized. Um, they were, you know, what was really interesting is they were really loud until you got to the missile. And then it, there were all the sound, uh, all these things to keep the missile from shaking. And the door on top that got blown away during this accident, that was designed to protect it from a Russian hydrogen weapon. Uh, so I don't know if that would have worked, frankly, uh, <laughs> considering it was just a missile that blew that door across the field. Uh, but that was supposedly, they told their airmen you'll be safe when the Russians fire a missile and hit it. So. Uh, yeah, over there. Yeah. Do you wanna, uh, could you hear in the back? Yeah, they heard. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I thought you did. If I can hear it, then they can hear Because <laughs> I can't hear anything. Uh, uh, the question was about uh, the vice president and what people it's pretty amazing how they were ignoring it. Yeah, yeah how it was kept secret. Um, I mean, John Mosier, the, who's a great guy, who actually in our interview, the night before our interview said, I'm not going to talk about the fact that he thought the weapon went off. I'm not going to talk about keeping it a secret. He gave me a list of things. And then when we got to the interview, it was in a dark room. I think that helps. I don't know why. But he answered every question. Uh, but I think... You know, it's pretty amazing that these things were secret, and that was their response. And, um, you know, when Mosier said he sent his assistant to meet with the vice president and couldn't tell him. Uh, though, when I asked Harold Brown about it, and maybe I feel a little bad not putting this in, Harold Brown's response was, what did Mondale think? We had marshmallows on it? You know, uh, you know, there's a certain logic that what was on it in terms of Mondale. But, you know, it was pretty terrible that you couldn't tell the sheriff and you couldn't tell the people around there. And there was this culture of secrecy. And that secrecy grew out of the Cold War. Uh, there were reasons for secrecy. You know, it was concern the Soviets would learn our secrets and learn how to, you know, and they did learn how to do the atomic weapon. Uh, and, but the fact of the matter is the Russians knew far more than vastly most members of the American, you know, um, cabinet and, you know, uh, that Russia knew so much more than the American public knew about our weapon system. Uh, so on some levels, those secrets no longer really made sense. And those secrets started to become very dangerous uh, when you couldn't share information on accidents for the people who were in charge of safety. That became insanity. Well, why do you think the government the Air Force or the government uh, now didn't give you that much opposition and, and almost cooperated to some extent, whereas 25 years, 35 years ago, they would, it was anathema to them. Well, to again, I think that people in power now are in charge of these weapons that no one's thinking about, and I think they're terrified. So, uh, and there's an argument whether we should upgrade. These weapons are run... Um, 
their computer systems uh, that operate these weapons are about a thousand times less powerful than this. Uh, so that scares people. Uh, and the fact that this, the Minuteman that's uh, in our silos today is, you know, about 30 years uh, past its state of being where it was supposed to be put out of service. And our airplanes that carry our weapons were built, uh, the last ones were built in the Eisenhower administration. Uh, and those are what are still flying today with our weapons. So there's, you know, the Heritage Foundation or people who came after me for Food Inc. and Merchants of Doubt uh, would like to screen this film because they see it as a reason that we should modernize our system. And then obviously uh, many other groups see it as a reason we should get rid of all our weapons. You make very encouraging movies, uh, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but keep doing it. I mean, it's amazing, uh, again, the style of the movie and the, the fact that it looks like a narrative feature. I mean, it, you know, and, and that he, he mentioned that he has no desire at all of making a narrative feature until the right one comes along, I'm sure. Yeah, one more in the back. Was there somebody in the back? No, great. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. And uh, thanks, thanks, thanks for bringing your film. It was terrific. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. If you enjoyed documentary-focused discussions like this, be sure to check out our recent episodes featuring director Christy Jacobson talking about her film Solitary, which takes viewers inside Virginia's notorious Red Onion State Prison, and director Heidi Ewing speaking along with the titular subject of her film, Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We'll have another episode going up later this week with Nate Parker talking about his new film, The Birth of a Nation. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.